Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. It was after waking up in the hospital for the fourth time with fatal alcohol poisoning. It was having the team of clinicians of the hospital I was working in doing substance abuse evaluations over the top of me. I mean, come on, Michelle. I was like, okay, so here you are. The state is here because they say that you are under the influence caring for your children and that's neglect. And so I had some really hard decisions to make. Do you want to make this a fifth time? Do you want to lose your children? Like, have you not made a complete fool and disaster of yourself yet? Are you you done? Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb-Wassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Michelle Smith. Michelle's passion for maternal mental health emerged after becoming a mother. Alcohol became a coping tool, eventually resulting in severe alcohol use disorder. As an educated professional working in the addiction field, she never imagined she would find herself struggling to find a healthy relationship with alcohol. Sitting on the bathroom floor, bawling her eyes out, wondering how she let her undiagnosed postpartum depression and alcohol use disorder go undetected for so long. She had worked so hard to build the life of her dreams, and when she was living it, all she wanted to do was escape. She went from a depressed, anxious mom using alcohol daily to numb, to living a life of confidence, freedom, and purpose. She chooses to recover out loud to let others know alcohol is not an accessory to motherhood. Michelle is on a mission to eradicate the mommy juice culture by normalizing sobriety in our boozy culture. She is the founder of Recovery is the New Black, a digital community for moms living or exploring an alcohol-free life. This was really an amazing interview. Michelle has done some incredible things in the recovery space, in the sober curious space. She has a wonderful digital community called Recovery is the New Black. She also has a wonderful newsletter that has all sorts of tips that end up in your inbox. And I just, I loved it. I love this. This is such an important conversation and mommy juice is definitely not an accessory to motherhood. So without further ado, I give you Michelle Smith. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Michelle, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This is really exciting. I've been following you for some time now. Your newsletter, your blog, your Instagram, and you've built quite an amazing following that is based on a lot of it on your recovery and your experience. Yes. Thank you. That means a lot to me. It's always good to hear that positive feedback and that people are resonating with the content and my story. So thank you for that, Ashley. Totally. How long have you been sober? Geez, almost five and a half years, 11, 24, 16. Nice, nice. And I interesting about your stories, you were involved in some amount of treatment before you got sober in the criminal justice system. Can you tell us a little bit about 
what your life was like before you got sober? Yeah, I worked for almost at that before I, before I came sober, it was about 15 years in the Department of Corrections that I had worked. And it was such a hard, fast paced, overwhelmed career. And so go figure, I was the substance abuse treatment coordinator, developed these treatment programs for three different penitentiaries. And towards the end of that, I started struggling with my own relationship with alcohol and finding that balance. And so I, you know, it was really hard because I had so many reasons of personal stories and testimonies from these guys and women that were incarcerated because of their drinking or being under the influence at the time they committed their crime. And you'd think that, you know, Michelle, what other information do you need that's leading you down this path that is not going to be good for you? Of course, denial. And it's not going to happen to me. I'm immune. And the rest of it was just a slow, debilitating, progressive disease that kicked in for me, which just turned into a snowball of disaster. Where did you grow up and how did you get into like into working in the criminal justice system? Yeah, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest and I always knew that I wanted to help people, but I didn't know in what capacity. I've always kind of been described as this humanitarian throughout the community of just serving others and showing up for people. My family, I was raised around a bunch of physicians and my dad was a doctor and he's like, I just want you to be a doctor. And I was like, maybe I'll be a nurse or a teacher. And so I went to Portland State University and changed my major like a million times, like every student usually does. And after I got kind of out of the business realm, I figured I wanted to be a teacher and to do education. That led me into psychology, which is what I majored in. And I started to do an interim and a practicum through a confidential crisis line in the community. And I absolutely loved it. But my heart after a couple of years and then graduating was torn between I'm helping all these victims of domestic violence and sexual assault and mental health. But where are the perpetrators and how do we stop this behavior, interrupt it, provide treatment and support to these individuals, which led me into the world of corrections, which I absolutely fell in love with. So that's a little bit about how I got through into the department. It's interesting. Most people who get into recovery do not say things like, I fell in love with the corrections department, but I love it. And I think, you know, I absolutely love that mentality. I share that, which is we spend so much time. Mine is my thoughts around this are more to do with sexual abuse and assault, et cetera, which are basically that we beef up all the victim services over and over and over again, but we don't beef up the services to stop them from being victimized in the first place. It's like society has accepted that this is going to happen and we aren't willing to go to the root cause, which is such a metaphor for so many other things. But I love that you were like, no, this is, I want to help these people and I need to get to the root of that. And the root of that can be reached over here. And, and not many people do that because it's harder. It's harder to look at the perpetrator to help the perpetrator than it is the victim. Absolutely. And rehabilitation though, and within the correctional system has gotten so large and expansive. 80%, 90% in Oregon release at some point, they're going to be our neighbors. They're going to be in our community. And so how are we going to provide tools so that they can actually utilize their time in custody 
to become a better person, a better partner, a better father or mother. And the just the options and the alternatives that are there for these people to graduate and get educational skills. It's amazing how much talent is locked up that is just incredible and mind-blowing. I've seen some some guys especially just blow up in the community and be all over the world as entrepreneurs. It's just, it's amazing. You know, we are all capable of ending up in the same position, those of us exactly who struggle with substance use. So it's very humbling to be able to learn from their behavior and their actions and their mistakes and turn it into something really cool. That's really cool. Do you think that seeing that working in that community and seeing the reach of addiction, alcoholism, that it almost created a caricature of what alcoholism looked like because you were it was in your face every day, which allowed you some denial, like the ability to separate from this particular population and your life. Maybe it felt not relatable in that way until you were out of denial. Does, does that resonate at all? Absolutely. And I think it resonates with a lot of people. It's, I haven't gotten that bad quote unquote yet. So everybody gets to decide what their level of tolerance is and what their rock bottom can be. And for me, I associated rock bottom with losing your family, being, you know, losing your freedom, essentially, where else can you go besides death? And so that absolutely played into, I haven't gotten that bad. That hasn't happened yet, but all of these other things have like a hangover and respect and love from the people who care about me. And so I think that's a huge thing that held me back and kept me stuck in this quote unquote, mindful drinking and problematic drinking, where now there's such a skew of problematic drinking and gray area drinking that we can stop and take a look at our relationship with alcohol at any time. We don't have to wait until we get a DUI or lose our freedom or our jobs in order to say, you know what? My relationship has become unhealthy. Why? And dig in and get curious about what has shifted between your relationship and how can I either keep this in my life or what is it going to cost me if I don't remove this from my life? When did you start to notice... You mentioned mindful drinking, right? So when did it start to go from, you know, oh, let's have a glass of wine to, huh, I want, you know, I don't like that. Or, or obviously none of us like hangovers, but that isn't usually the reason people stop drinking. Can you paint a picture for us what that looked like in the beginning? Yeah, I was working actually two jobs in the prison. I was by day building a treatment program for mental health and by night one for substance use. So I was spending like 12 hours a day in the department. That's a lot. And when I was coming home, I noticed that, well, everything tells me it's okay to drink a glass of wine either at happy hour or as I'm cooking in order to just de-escalate my thoughts, wind down, relax, treat myself. I deserve it. Everything was all in my head. I could come up with a million different scenarios of why this was an okay thing to do besides the fact that society normalizes this behavior. You know, it really became this shift when I stopped doing things I enjoyed where I would take a bath or I would do takeout. I was making it a lot harder on myself. And I had this expectation for my life of I'm going to continue to make home cooked meals because it's like my therapy. I enjoy cooking. And when you're cooking, when you're depleted, you're tired, the kids are past starving, they're fighting. The bath should have already been ran. And I just noticed that 
it was just an emotional crutch for me. I had everything I had ever wanted in my life. I was living my dream and I shifted my dream mentality towards a drinking mentality that was teleport me. I want to escape from everything I've created. I am overwhelmed and I'm too stubborn to ask for help. And I'm just going to continue to show face that I can do it all with a smile on my face, regardless of the cost to my mental health. I have to keep going because I don't know any other way. And when people started to notice this, they would make comments. But for me, going back to the denial piece of I'm not like them. And so I'm not like my uncles. I'm not like the people incarcerated or that you see on TV. And so there's still this wiggle room for me to be here till the time I get there. And when people would say something out of love and compassion and with boundaries, I got more secretive because I didn't want the accountability. And that secret kept me so sick and isolated and depressed that it really spiraled from there. So there's a couple things in there that I want to talk about, which I really think are important. And your story is so important, particularly as the pandemic, uh, coming out of the pandemic. And you, we have this culture of, you know, mommy wine drinking of, you know, two working parents or working mom and raising kids and being everything to everyone, right? Being, and I don't know, I won't make a comment on that as it relates to men because I don't know their experiences personally, but I do know my experience trying to do it all is that it's really, really difficult and it wears you down when you're in recovery and you don't have, I notice I don't have that quick wind down. And when I look at mommy wine culture, what I think to myself is, or what I have thought is I'm missing a tool. This pretty wine glass with the, the out, like it's a tool to take you down to do the transition from work to mom, from mom to wife, from wife to coma and bed, <laughs> you know, whatever. It's 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 this tool. And so I, I often would go, gosh, you know, like that looks like a really good tool that I don't have. I'm not doing it seamlessly. You describe what most people think of as normalcy, right? It doesn't look like crazy out of control drinking. You still have a job. You still have the kids, you still have the house, you still all the things you describe, but there's something in there, right? There's something in your head that isn't working, that's making you feel like, like it's taking you to another place. You don't want to be where you are with your family. I see that a lot. What do you think allowed you to say, oh, my drinking doesn't have to look like, you know, Joe who's incarcerated? Like you allow, a lot of people refuse to stop until they hit those yets, but you didn't do that. Why? I think for me, it was the self-awareness piece is that I don't have to compare myself as journey to anybody else's. And I need to start seeing the similarities versus the differences. If I don't like how this chemical feels in my body, it doesn't belong there. And I started doing work on myself. At what point was there, like you were talking about, this shift in the season that is making alcohol have a different impact on my life than it had before? And that's where I talk a lot about just the shift in a couple of years of having two children, losing your mom as you become a mom, having health issues. I had multiple strokes. My husband was deployed to war. 
I felt disconnected. I felt alone. I felt abandoned. I wasn't doing the bereavement work. And society, my friends, every reason in the world that is normalized, here's a bottle of wine or a fifth of alcohol, expecting you to drink in moderation to celebrate or to, you know, to grieve. But it's such an addictive substance that if we continue to create habits and routines around this beverage, anyone will become addicted to an addictive mind-altering chemical. And so that was a huge piece for me is to say, my life is literally becoming unmanageable. Things that I had said I would never do or say, I have crossed that line. And that line can be anything that we want it to be. It doesn't have to be sleeping around or driving intoxicated or losing your job. It could simply be I skip bedtime stories for my kids now. I lie and say I'm upstairs folding laundry when I'm hiding in the garage in the refrigerator. I get to decide if this feels like me or am I literally eliminating myself from my own life. And for me, the the moment that I sat with myself and said, you told me, Michelle, that you would never be your father. And I was eliminating myself the exact way my father was. And I am a child, adult child of an alcoholic parent. I was literally eliminating myself from my children's life. And me not having parents, I know what that feels like. And I was devastated that I was doing it to my children. And I absolutely enough was enough. And as you know, working for the Department of Corrections, being arrested, going in front of the judge and being sitting in a drunk tank never would scare me one bit. That wasn't going to be my thing. I know the judges. I know the jail. I know the protocol. It wasn't, that wasn't what was going to be that shift for me like it was for other people. And so awareness is key and denial. Just listen to people. They love you enough to say something and not co-sign and enable your destructive behavior. They're saying it because they love you. And that was helpful for me. I mean, that is so much also happening, right? That you describe so much happening. Being an adult child of an alcoholic, you know, we don't say adult child of any other thing, right? Like that's a very specific thing. It comes with, there's a, I know it's the laundry list, right? The checklist. And when you were growing up, what did alcohol use look like in your dad? Because you said, I will never be my father. That's something I hear all the time of people who had, grew up with alcoholism. And then they're like, oh no, it's happening. I swore it wouldn't happen. What did, What was that for you? You know, until I went to treatment, I would always tell people, even like when you do icebreakers at work or whatever, they'll say, how was your childhood? It was great. I It was normal. I... I never got beat. I was not sexually abused. I never went without food, my basic needs, and even more were taken care of. I feel like I had a really good upbringing. And when I went to treatment, the one thing that resonated with me the most is that I missed my parents and my childhood was far from normal. And so that question that you led with is, I barely saw him. Because he worked at the hospitals and he had so many different clinics around the community that I was longing for connection with this guy that I idolized. And when I would see him, it was very late at night when I was shooed to my bedroom while my parents would fight. And it was very much clutching on to this. It was traumatic, clutching on to this blanket and this care bear at the time 
where I wasn't supposed to hear it. And all I wanted to do was be this caretaker and make the peace and keep these secrets because nobody could know about them. And the emotional abuse that went on while he was under the influence and the broken things around the house, there is nothing normal about that. And kids are so resilient and they see so much that I want my kids to not think that we have to normalize sobriety, but it's a normal thing for people in my home not to drink. It's okay to be different and to be a non-drinker and not get made fun of or poked at um, because you choose not to ingest that. So it was very small bite-sized pieces, but I saw my father under the influence more than I saw him sober. So I would chase him doing rounds on the weekends, wanting to be able to be with him because I knew he needed to be sober during that period of time. But what I really was challenged with when I looked into that mirror and treatment I sat in the nursing station the entire time with popsicles and jello. I never got to spend time with him in the patient's rooms. So I had this idea of finding a way to see him and spend time with him sober. And it was just so scarce. It was such a small amount of time that I just treasured it until he passed away. You said your mom passed away. Did your dad pass away before your mom? Yes, he did. He passed away when I was 15 from a massive heart attack. And he had been sober for, I think it was two years before he passed. Okay. So some huge trauma. I mean, some really, some really, I have a girlfriend whose dad was a neurologist and it's funny that the kids with doctors often they'll say like, no, I had a normal childhood. I had a good childhood. And when we like dig up her childhood, it's absolutely hilarious. Like nothing normal about it. Same kind of deal. But there's this like, well, my dad's a doctor. I mean, like there's, it's like, but it looks like this. And so on the outside, it looks like it's normal. So we're going to call it normal. Absolutely. When your husband was sent off to war, I think there's like, there's, okay, so there's this element of like this trauma, your adult child of alcoholic, then there's also military family. And that is so huge. And it's something that I've more recently been exposed to having someone very close to me, have a husband deployed and watching what that's like. And, you know, it's really hard to know what that's like if you've never been up close to it. It just, frankly, I had an idolized view of how well the military takes care of the family. I didn't really have any information about that. So your husband gets deployed and you have two kids at this time, right? And Mm -hmm. How are the other women coping with that? Like, is that normal to get together and drink and kind of, you know, I don't know, bitch about our husbands kind of deal? What was that like? How are you supposed to cope with it? I didn't have a relationship with a lot of the other families there, which I think was a really interesting component looking back. When my father passed, I was 15. I met my husband at 16 at high school. And so the abandonment of one I gravitated towards this guy, right? This this other figure of us, you know, he was the quarterback of the football team, interested in me. Wow, right? And so we've been together ever since, but, you know, we stayed together for a long period of time leading back up to the military. And it was like, you're abandoning me now. You told me you would never leave kind of thing, you know, and you're going to be here for the long haul. And now every guy that I trust is like, literally, I felt abandoned. I get why he did it. I encouraged it. I support it. I still do. And it really had a huge impact on me. And so I really reached out to the community as a whole versus the military families because we were all just already 
had our connections of our supports in place. And they really didn't do a good job in his unit of keeping us active, informed. Like maybe that would have helped a little bit more. But I got into the mommies around here that were local, which are just, you know, giving me permission and co-signing on this is legit behavior. Like, this is what we do. Do you want to hang out with us? And of course, I want connection. I want to hang out and have adult conversation versus Mickey Mouse for the fifth time on replay. So yeah, I'll be there. And, you know, I would show up with my coffee or Diet Coke and they were like, what are you drinking? I'm like, coffee and Coke. And it was, "Let's, let's show you the way, Michelle. And from there, it was just like, I love how I feel. I love not feeling sad, wondering if my husband has a leg that was just blown off or wondering if he's ever going to come back or the financial hardship that I may be facing around the corner. It was so heavy and so much to bear that it was like depleting myself. Like I felt like I was in a pressure cooker and all of a sudden I felt relief. I felt just for one moment, the chatter in my head and the noise quieted and I fell in love. The mommy wine culture really, it sounds like that was a huge spark for your alcoholism. Like that was a real, it wasn't just like a passive thing that you were a part of. It was the beginning. Yeah. I feel like my addiction, my alcoholism was, it was kind of like this bear in hibernation. Don't poke the bear, Michelle. And I always knew I had this genetic predisposition and I stayed away from it, Ashley. I knew better until I finally had that time and that vulnerable part of my life. And that season, I said yes to something I knew I shouldn't have done. And it was, it was over. It was over. And it was, it was very looking back. It was a short span of time, but it's a very progressive disease, which is very misleading and tricky to people who think you can have this beat this. It's under control. It's all in your head. You don't get it until somebody that you love is directly impacted or you're impacted yourself to really understand that you are literally taken under your own spell. And you're not even conscious of like autopilot, you're just ending up at the liquor store and you have no idea how you got there. That's how I can describe it. It, I was like a demon was controlling my thoughts. If I chose to take the first drink, I gave up control and I was no longer making the decisions. And I love that slogan of one is too many, a thousand will never be enough because that is my truth. And I could not understand that slogan at the beginning of my journey forever. But I was just like, okay, that just for today, alcohol, you know, sobriety delivers everything alcohol promises. These mantras and affirmations must mean something. So I'm going to keep chanting them until I understand and I can have them resonate and be applicable to my life and my recovery. And they could never be so, so fitting for my life now. But I had to go through all that murky, icky, gross stuff in order to get to where I was and to really understand why alcohol is not serving me. Even if I had to keep doing it over and over and over again, and I kept getting the same exact results or worse, it took that in order for me to understand and me to believe when no one's watching, I don't want to drink anymore. Right. There's that horrible feeling where you, I remember you're literally drinking going, stop, Ashley, stop. Do like you're having a conversation, your hand and your head and your, you know, and your little demon are all fighting with each other. And the, the hand is being controlled by the demon and the head is going, no, 
you know, like, I'm not going to do this again. I'm not going to do this again. Okay, fine. It'll be different the next time. And it's just, it's such a vicious cycle. As you know, you had a, what you refer to as a real bottom. What was the bottom where you stopped digging? It was after waking up in the hospital for the fourth time with fatal alcohol poisoning. It was having the team of clinicians of the hospital I was working and doing substance abuse evaluations over the top of me. I mean, come on, Michelle. I was like, okay, so here you are. The state is here because they say that you are under the influence caring for your children and that's neglect. And so I had some really hard decisions to make. Do you want to make this a fifth time? Do you want to lose your children? Like, have you not made a complete fool and disaster of yourself yet? Are you, are you done? Like, because I don't know how much further you can go. And so for me to really sit and get clear and to sit with my higher power and say, you know what? You have some really hard decisions to make. You can continue to self-sabotage and tell yourself you're a piece of crap and that nobody loves you and that you've gotten all these boundaries around you that are just simply for love and compassion because nobody else knows how to help you, Michelle. You were unsuccessful after treatment, which family think that's, they think it's a cure-all and it's not. And so there's, there was so much work that had to be done as a family dynamic and the things that were really driving me internally to reach for this external solution as a coping tool had to be done. So after that work, along with I'm eliminating myself from my children's life was where I decided I surrender. I am now a person who cannot drink responsibly for whatever the reason is. And there's a multitude of reasons, but stop giving it so much power. I did everything I could for seven years to keep alcohol a part of my life and adjust my entire world. And I realized I only have to eliminate this one thing from my life, which leaves endless possibilities of things I can do if I just kick the booze. It doesn't have to be this hard. And alcohol is really not as important as I'm giving it credit for. Leaving work, coming home, I would give the credit to the wine that I was drinking as I was preparing my food. And like you said earlier, it wasn't that. It was the, it was the drive across state lines, leaving my desk, listening to personal development, having a conversation with my girlfriend while not interrupted with children screaming in the background, seeing the beautiful scenery, the air, the water. That was the coping to clearing my head from work and transitioning into the mom role. And I was giving all of the credit to the glass of wine that solved all these problems. And it wasn't. So the self-awareness and the ability to take off the blinders and say, stop with the ads in the media and all of the baby showers, like just say no, say no. So you can say yes and get your head on right. So it was a, a lot of different factors, but people say it's this rock bottom. I surrendered. I just had this moment of clarity, Stand, you know, just get on your knees and wait. It takes what it takes. And eventually you're going to hear the same things a million times. But when you're ready to hear it and you're ready to do something with it, I truly believe we become unstoppable. And that's, that was my truth. Why do you think the first bout of treatment was unsuccessful? I think there was a lot of reasons why it was really hard building inpatient treatment programs and then being a patient. It was really hard on the ego, especially when I walked in, they were like, oh, were you an intern? I had to swallow my pride and say, I'm a patient, you know, and that was really hard. And it was still exactly where I had to be and learning that there was doctors and lawyers and teachers and school principals that were in there with me really made me see that I'm not so different and I'm not alone. Breaking those stigma and stereotypical ideas in my head of, 
oh my gosh, I'm going to be like with all these like, you know, porn stars or like, you know, whatever, which I, I was teamed up with one of them and I absolutely love her. So it was so awesome, but it was just getting away was helpful but you can't just ship me away as I'm this problem and this is the highest level of care. And so if this doesn't work, what else are we going to do with her? Okay. Well, if I come home and nothing changes, nothing changes. If you're still drinking around me, if you haven't made this a sacred space, a zero free proof home, and there's booze around, if you don't do the work on why am I triggered in the first place, Don't just hand me a pamphlet that says find AA in the community. What's my treatment plan? Where's my connection with community? That wasn't built for me. And that was huge transitioning back into the world that was so triggering. We can stop drinking for a while and drugging. But when we have to go back, which we all have to go back, they can't look and feel the same, or you're going to fall right back into the same patterns of how you were living before. And that's exactly what happened to me. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hello, beautiful people. Oh, we've got meetings. I just wanted to let you know because I think that you will love them. It doesn't matter if you're trying to figure out how to navigate relationships in your sobriety or trying to get your nutrition to a healthier place or working on your parenting recovery or just trying to find meditation that will work for you. You've been trying to do it. You know it's good for you, but they all make you sit too still, and you're really not into mantras, and you're not sure if you're supposed to sit in a chair or the couch or your bed, there are so many support groups to choose from, more than 70 a week, and I'm sure you'll find one that you love. I'd like to give you one month free to try it out. All you need to do is go to lionrock.life or download the Lion Rock Life app and use promo code COURAGE at checkout for one month free of meetings. Again, go to lionrock.life or download the Lion Rock Life app. Use promo code COURAGE for one month of free meetings. Okay, back to the show. Did you find that your husband was supportive of this transition of this of this new lifestyle? He was supportive in how he needed to be and the, the information that he really knew about addictions because I have always been this strong, independent woman that doesn't really need a lot but wants a lot from our relationship. And so I've never been like dependent or, you know, where he had to really step up more. And so... That was the biggest moment of weakness that I had in our relationship. And he didn't know what to do with me. He was just like, you're so strong and you can hold it together. And I depend on you for this. You're my rock. And where'd she go? He supported me in the best ways he knew how, but this was my issue, not his issue with drinking. I love you, but I don't need to stop. I won't do it around you. Uh, I won't kiss you if I come home, but I enjoy my beer once or twice a month. And so that was his way of support. But he was very quick to notice that sobriety was taking a lot of my time, which is something you hear a lot about this jealousy component of why are you basically now it was the bottle that you were spending all your time with. Now it's all your recovery friends and these meetings that you're on and your sponsor. And it's just like, it'll even out right now. I have to spend as much time in my recovery as I was chasing, using and recovering from my addiction. And you just need to be patient with me. Mm -hmm. It's hard. That can be hard. It's, it's a confusing thing for people who don't understand addiction. Right. And so We have to do a lot of education around that. How did you go from, you know, your own recovery journey into 
talking about your recovery more publicly? It was really hard for me, just as hard as it would be for anybody who's like, good for you, Michelle, but I'll never do that. It was me scrolling through as I was still drinking, scrolling through, just looking at people, seeing words of wisdom, seeing them come back after multiple attempts at sobriety. It was inspiring to be that fly on the wall. And so I created an account and it wasn't linked to anybody that I know or anybody that I work with. And I just started documenting my journey and the discussion got so big and the need was there, but I'm like, why don't we do this in a little bit more of a secured social media environment? So I got shifted people over to the recovery as the new black Facebook group, which is for women only and it's private. And it just kept growing. And the conversations were so authentic and non-judgmental that I'm like, there are so many more people that are hurting. And I did this all alone thinking I was completely a crazed lunatic. And I was the only one struggling. Of course, I'm not going to be like, oh, hey, I have a drinking problem. Like, I don't want to change because I really didn't. And moderation's not working. You want to be my friend? (laughs) You know, it's like, it just wasn't working. You don't, you don't say that stuff. It scares people away. And that's, I needed to not be alone and be isolated and neglected. I needed somebody just to love me through this really messy season without judgment. And that's what I started creating on social media. And so it's just, my conversation is important to somebody and it's going to resonate and land in the position of somebody who needs to hear just for today. You're not insane that this is an addictive chemical and you're not alone. And I know that that's such a cliche statement, but it is so true because this disease wants to tell us that we are and we can moderate and it's not that bad. But when we keep going back to it, it's that slippery slope that I want to be that voice for somebody that just wants to know, I don't care how many times you mess up, you're still worthy and you can still recover. And it, there's such a beautiful life on the other side. And the more destructive we are and the longer it takes us to see this isn't serving us, the more problematic things happen. So it's harder for somebody who's sober curious to want to make a change when they haven't had very many natural consequences yet. But we can avoid yet happening, which is pretty cool. And so, you know, just social media has been used for good in certain situations like this of just bridging the gap and bringing people together. And so many events and just the podcasts, there's so many cool things that have resulted from people just sharing their own stories of hope. It's just been an incredible thing. And it's just, it's just getting started. What is your vision for recovery is the new black? I have lots of really good ideas of what I want to see happen, especially in the next couple of years. My biggest thing is, is I want to build a treatment program for women that has been on my heart. I have purchased property I'm staring at right now, and I can totally envision what it's going to look like. It's just going to take some hard work and lots of money to get there and it's going to happen. So that is a huge thing. The movement to continue to expand having treatment options, having services, continuing to spread the awareness, getting more conversations started in different states, building, you know, a podcast and programs. And, you know, in the middle of my third book, two of them are going to be out this year. I want people to have them on their coffee table. I want them to be in jails and treatment programs. Really the message of hope and that women, especially moms, have a really, really hard job. And 
it doesn't have to end in us being chemically addicted to this thing that promises us relief and freedom from a job we signed up for because our kids are being so affected by this mommy juice culture, mommy wine culture, whatever we want to call it. And it's, it breaks my heart to see that we are losing control of our own kids that we, I had to take a parenting class because my kids were crazy. And not only did they have and get diagnosed with ADHD and I have severe anxiety. So it's this running joke now that including my husband, you all have clinical ADHD. If you don't take your medications, mama doesn't want to drink. So it's like this thing of, you know, it makes me sad that I wanted to drink because I couldn't handle my own kids. And that told me that my boundaries I'm not being assertive enough. I'm letting them run the show. I don't run the show and that's not okay. And if I want to drink because of my kids, I have to take a really hard look at what my parenting style is, my forms of self-care and what I'm allowing my children to do because that's not okay. And alcohol is not an option anymore. So where are our alternatives and how are we going to say no and set boundaries as mothers without feeling bad and guilty about not being yes, ma'am, people pleasers all the time. And I still struggle with it, but I know that if I continue to not take care of myself, my end result will be reaching for that over there, which is poison. And I call it sad juice because that's what it is. Every time I look at it, I see a poison sign because it'll never, ever change. So that's my mission is just to continue to spread awareness and let moms know that we don't have to do mom shaming. It's like, you know, co-sleeping versus not crib sleeping, alcohol versus not rest versus formula. It's like those three conversations can get really heated and none of them are right or wrong. It's just, let's support each other through whatever decision we make as moms to be able to get through motherhood and enjoy it, not just get through it as fast as we can. So that's where my heart is right now. And it'll always lead me to new opportunities and new collaborations and partnerships that are going to manifest things I don't even know exist right now. But I feel a calling. I know what it feels like to be on the other side. And I want somebody to know that there's a different way. I love it. I love it. And you know, one of the things that I think is beautiful is like when people are called, you know, like you said, like you feel this calling, you're called to do something and you, it's, it's momentum, it's force, it's the universe just pulling you to help other people. And that's such a fulfilling feeling. So I'm, I'm loving that you have that. Do you think that the mommy wine culture is a reaction? I've been calling it a battle cry of women who have asked for equality, wanted equality, we fought for equality. And what we got was more work because there is no way to make motherhood equal. There is no way to give 50% of motherhood to fathers. I wonder what I see and what I've experienced is that I now have more jobs because I'm working, but I still manage all the things that happen with the kids. And that's the story that I hear a lot. And I wonder if the uptick in mommy wine culture is this attempt to soothe the incredibly overworked, overwhelmed group of women in today's society who feel like they're trapped. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's this vulnerable population of people. And I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom so bad that I had the opportunity to try it. I couldn't do it. 
and I felt guilty for not working. And I went back to work and then I couldn't do that. And it was like, I didn't, I didn't have a choice anymore. And like you said, we don't, we have to do it all. And until I was willing to put up boundaries and say, my expectations now are unrealistic. Something has to give, and it can't be my mental health because I can't be here and help take care of everybody, including myself, if I'm not well. And so I believe big alcohol sees this marketing ploy to suck this vortex around this vulnerable, underserved population of people. We have the scotch drinkers. We have the NFL football players, you know, crowd, the guys. We have this whole group of women, millions of them who aren't our customers. So we're going to start doing skinny vodka, organic, low sugar, all the cute, relatable memes. We're going to get into the, you know, the baby showers and the celebrations and they totally marketed women, vulnerable, exhausted, depleted, looking for anything to relieve the pressure. And they got it. And there's not a lot of regulation. And it's not funny. I just had a client send me a white cloth sippy cup. And I think there's absolutely nothing funny about that. And I know that I'm personally affected by that. Even pulling back the lens from a professional standpoint, as a mother even, there's nothing funny about, would you see a a tobacco logo on that and think that's cute and funny and relatable? No, no way. So why is this any different? It's promoting underage drinking and humor around a disease that is the number one killer in the United States. That's not funny, right? I mean, I think that it's like you joke about things that people joke about things that are relevant, that are obvious. And what we know is relevant and obvious is like you already had this pressure cooker of exhausted parents and trying to make it all happen as things become more and more out of reach. And you add in a pandemic. I mean, I don't know about you, but I was stuck at home with little kids and watching people watching people use alcohol. And I didn't blame them one bit. You know, it was like, I remember thinking, I don't know how I'm going to do this without alcohol because all of my coping skills were all the things all that I had developed, but they were no longer accessible. So now I felt like I had no coping skills. So you have this, this pressure cooker, these compounding factors. And I think it's almost so wild. Like it's almost so in your face. People joke about it because they don't know how else to manage it, right? It's like, we have to talk about it in some way and we don't even know how to talk about it. So we have to, it's so morbid. We have to laugh. It's, it's gallows humor. And I think a lot of this stuff picked up when we were all locked at home. And as you said, alcoholism is the disease of isolation and we were all super isolated. Absolutely. I'm so with you. It was so hard. We finally have this plan and this consistency and this this whole package that was working really well with therapy and gym and yoga and our meetings. And then you take it all away and leave us homeschooling on top of remote working on top of like doing nothing, but knowing that there's cannabis and alcohol available, like coming from the the sky, like literally your best favorite dream ever. Curbside, are you kidding me? Like, and you're stuck at home with little kids who want to go outside, but they can't. So they're crawling the walls. Yeah, it was crazy. And the resilience we've been, you know how they say you've been training for this. 
never in our wildest dreams would we have thought this would have been the thing. But here we are. And we're leading by example, saying if we can get through a natural disaster and like, you know, a pandemic and all of these things, we're pretty badass. Like we are some really incredible, powerful human beings. It's just amazing to me. So yeah, that's been the hardest challenge of, of my recovery for sure. But I did it. It didn't look pretty and it was messy. And I did it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Likewise, likewise. Didn't look pretty and and I didn't pick up, you know. And and ultimately what I tell people is, you know, for 16 years I've been clean and sober and plenty of that was embarrassing and, you know hot mess express. But the one thing that I did perfectly was I didn't put mind altering substances into my body. And that is the difference. The only difference between me and someone else who did, because it's just, it's not going to be perfect. Sometimes, you know, there were times in the beginning where I just literally was like, I'm going to hide my keys from myself. You know, think that you just did things where you, I'm just going to sit on my hands. I'm going to, you know, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. And this has been a wild, wild journey. I can, t- I can tell you that having been sober for a long time before the pandemic and during it, it was, it was different. It was, and I, I really commend all the people who got sober during the pandemic. That was wild to watch. Yeah, it was. You know, it's any time is amazing. And it was the perfect time too, right? No matter how you look at it, the difference of perspectives, if a thing is like peer pressure and you don't want people to know and you don't want to be dishonest in your refusal skills when you go out, perfect time. You're in hiding anyway when no one's going to know. So when you come out, right, of the lockdown, I've been sober for, geez, we thought it was going to be six weeks. I've been sober for a, a year or two or six months. And I kind of like how I feel. I'm going to keep this going, but you enjoy yourself over there. I, I still am really fun to be around, but I'm just going to drink Diet Coke for tonight. So let's, let's do this. Let's have some fun and just be confident. And even if you just have to fake it until you make it, you know, it's going to happen. It's just no one cares if you're drinking or not. No one really does. No one cares. I always tell people that no one cares what's in your cup. And if they do, there's something wrong with them. You know, maybe they want you to be partaking and holding a cup. Fine. It shouldn't matter what's in it. Yep. Exactly. Fill it up, cover it up, have a plan so that you don't feel vulnerable and you fumble. And then your insecurity leads your addiction. And before you know it, you're sitting there at your fifth drink. It doesn't have to be like that. And this is our lives and whatever someone's going to think they're going to think regardless. So I always remind myself, I'm going to give them something to talk about. I am that person that turned into this. I'm happy. If you want to talk about me, you know, then at least I'm not that drunk girl, you know, doing something crazy or sleeping around. Like I I'm empowering myself and I'm not anti-drinking, but I am pro sobriety. And I want people to know that they're still cool if they choose not to do it. Totally. Totally. And I find that, you know, I find that you can read the room, you can read the crowd, right? Is this a crowd or a circumstance where I'm going to say, no, actually I'm sober X amount of time. And then people get curious and you end up talking about it. Or there's been other times where it's, I don't want the attention. So I just ask for something else. And I say that I don't drink or I say, I'm not drinking tonight. And that's it. That's the end of it. I don't want to, I don't, you know, I don't want to get into it. And so you have the opportunity to read the room. But what's always fun for me is that people get really interested and it's an opportunity for you to share. And it might be an opportunity for you to share with someone who needs to hear what you have to say. Absolutely. And sometimes it's just like, you don't want to have that conversation or, you know, they're just asking 
mean because they want to be a mean person, but usually nine times out of 10, they are curious. And so, you know, when you were talking, one of the things that resonates is like, you know, I was such a people pleaser that I had to, I was disappointing a lot of people in my addiction and I wanted to make things right. But that stuck with me is that I had to learn how to disappoint people. And part of that was saying no, because I just couldn't. And so I don't go into rooms that I don't feel like I can maintain my sobriety. And I say no to functions that aren't going to serve me that are just a drinking fest. And so I'm not going to put myself in those situations. If I don't have an exit plan or if I don't know these people and I'm not with somebody that I feel safe, I'm sorry, but I guess to go or I'm not going. I have to protect my sobriety like my life depends on it because it does. And I'd rather have somebody be upset and disappointed that I couldn't enjoy or couldn't attend a function than me wrapping myself around a telephone pole or killing somebody or ruining your wedding. Trust me, you don't want me there, (laughs) you know? And so it's like, that sucks. But you know what? I got good at boundaries and I have to, in order to take care of myself. And I have to always remind myself about that because I can do it now but they don't see the other side of me feeling like a hot mess and like melting because I feel so awful where I can't feel bad about not being there and serving everybody all the time. There's not enough of me and my bandwidth isn't that big. And I have to disappoint people, unfortunately, in order to show them that I'm not superwoman. Yeah, that's hard. It is really hard. And it's essential in order for me to maintain my sobriety and be the best mom and wife that I can be. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we get to figure out when we're recovering, right? Because the alcohol was just an attempt to make it all, you know, be another piece of the puzzle and it just didn't work. And, um, and so figuring out what makes it work. And a lot of the time, I think saying no turns out to be one of the missing pieces. I think that happens for a lot of us where I noticed that when I don't say no enough, my sobriety gets wonky. So I think even, you know, even now it's, it's just a big, it's a big and important thing. And it changes as my kids get older, as I get older, it's just a really important skill to have to be able to say no. It is. And I think it's too, it's kind of cool because if you're just open about it and you don't have to explain all the reasons why you're not doing it, it just, you feel better without it because everyone does. And it doesn't do any good for you anyway. It doesn't help your body. (laughs) And so it's like, by just being honest and saying you're a non-drinker, it takes out the invites and it really kind of comes through who's going to stay and who's going to go. And you don't have to say no as much because if people are going to invite you to a vineyard, they're not going to invite you. So you don't have to say no because they know that's not going to be respectful, you know, with your sobriety. And so it does come out a lot of the invites that would lead you down a slippery slope by just being honest or people who want to stick around are going to say, well, what do you want to do or throw some ideas my way because we want you to feel included and alcohol is not a big thing. We don't have to go to the brewery. We can go do something different that doesn't have a prominent, like, you know, the establishment is serving alcohol and there's nothing else to do because there's so much, as you know, to do and to have fun that doesn't have to involve alcohol. And if you're living in that life where it has for so long, our friendships and everything that we do for fun and leisure involves alcohol because that's what we've been doing. So we think, what are we going to ever do when we can never have fun because it was such a big piece of our world that we can't see our life without it until we start seeing our life without it. And then it's like, wow, I can go camping. I can go fishing. I can go to a concert and even have more fun. 
Yeah. It's pretty darn rad. It's really cool. It's really cool. And, and you know, sometimes my experience, my youngest sister got married last, is it last year? Yeah, last year. And she had her bachelorette party in Napa. And I can go to bars, raves, clubs, whatever, but wineries are one place. Like, doesn't matter what this, like, I just don't go to wineries and not a good place for me. So, but you know, it's my youngest sister and I wanted to be part of, et cetera, et cetera. So there have been circumstances. This was one of them where I brought, you know, and and in this case, the, you know, this worked out well because my sister knows my best friend, but I brought my best friend who's also sober. And I said to my sister, Hey, I want to be there. I want to be part of, I'm going to stay at the Airbnb while, you know, with my best friend while you guys go and I'll drive, we'll drive you back and forth to the different wineries. And then after you guys will come home and we'll all hang out, we'll go swimming and blah, blah, blah. And I'll be there for the brunch and the this and the that. And so that's what we did. I had my best friend come with me who's sober and, you know, we shared a room and it was a great time. And we got to, you know, shuttle them around, which was perfect. And I got to be a part of in the way that made sense for me. And it was really interesting because I felt like it was, it was really cool that that was ingrained in me. That was not something I would have thought to do in my early years, I probably would have tried to power through it and then it would have been uncomfortable and et cetera, et cetera. But as you make this more and more decisions that support your recovery and know what at wineries, I just, every time I'm in a winery, I want to drink every bottle of alcohol I can see. But if I'm in a bar, I don't care. I don't know. I don't know what the difference is. And I, I don't even question it. All I know is Ashley doesn't go to wineries. So when you have these, you know, I talk to people who have work events or different things that come up, there are lots of tips and tricks to manage your way through these if you know your limits. And maybe your limit is I can only be, I can be in a winery, but only for 15 minutes before I start to get wonky or like whatever it is. It's different for different people. And I think once you start to get to know yourself and your recovery better, you can move through the world with so much more ease. And the world is, it's not as difficult as it once was. That to me is one of the blessings about staying sober a long time is that the things that used to be super complicated, what people think, how it's going to work, blah, 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 blah. It just becomes kind of intuitive. It really does. Early sobriety is so hard. There's so many moving pieces on top of physically not feeling well. And it's like, you just stick it out and keep coming back because that hamster will, you keep going through this over and over and over again, and you get discouraged. And you finally realize that if you just would have stuck through you're not even getting to the good part. You just keep going through the hardest part over and over and over again because you're waiting for these results. It's like weight loss. You give up because you haven't seen it in the mirror yet. And it's like, just keep doing it because this is a lifestyle. You have to know that, you know, for some of like us, like it is do or die, not for everybody. But if you just keep coming back, you're going to get creative. Like your refusal skills with your sister, it's brilliant. But people early on who don't have the tools, the competence and the mindset don't know that it's either concrete, black or white, right? It is, I can't go where I have to go and I'm going to be in trouble or they're going to think I'm mean. And that goes to the whole work thing with like happy hours. Like if I don't become part of it, but I don't want to also disclose it. And so it's important to say, Hey, you know, I'm in recovery or, you know, sis, I can't do the bachelor party, but I want you to know that I have a special night for us. When you get back, that I want to honor and love and support you. And I can't do this one. Unfortunately, I have to sit this one out. I love you. Don't make it, you know, it's just like, there's so many creative ways to still do what you want to do, regardless of what season of your journey that you're in. 
we just got to get out of the martyr, the victim standpoint. See, this is never going to work. My life's miserable. No, it's not. We're just going to have to get a little creative until we can know ourselves a little bit better to make really good decisions. So, so fun and so many amazing things that we can still do, right? I mean, I've done way more. I've been to raves. I've been to parties, clubs. You know, I've been bungee jumping, skydiving, swam with great white sharks. I've done way more cool things in my recovery than I ever came close to doing. And, you know, I didn't, I was taught by people who came before me. You know, I I think that's the creative ideas of how to make these different things work, how to, how to navigate the world. I talked to women who'd been sober and done the things I wanted to do and asked them how they did it and brainstormed and spoke to more than, you know, many more than one. And, you know, and you get into the community and and lean on people and it's a beautiful experience. It really is. It's such a beautiful journey, but it's not even about the bottle. That's the cool part is that people are in recovery they're amazing, freaking incredible human beings that have done some inner work that nobody could ever imagine if you're not recovering from something. And we all have those vices, but who is willing to go in and do the work? And it's like, you learn so much about yourself and how to heal and how to love and how to enjoy life. And it's like how to make yourself happy and, and be your own company and learn to date yourself and, and know that you're really never alone when you're with yourself. So get over it. You know, it's like, it's just such a beautiful thing that people that are just like, you know, in recovery and like know what it's like to have nothing and lose everything. It's pretty freaking rad and magical to be sober today and be alive to be living when all I wanted to do was die. It's There's so much hope and there's so much love that it's just like, keep freaking going. I promise you, if you do the work and you make some changes and you learn to love yourself enough, life is just, it's an incredible gift and we need to live it. Yep. It's beautiful. Well, you are wonderful, Michelle. Thank you so much for being here. Can you tell us what books are coming out when, where we can find you, your website, etc.? Yes. I don't know if I have permission yet to give okay, the clearance no on my two books, but you can find me on the website. Mine is recoveryisthenewblack.com. And I have the private Facebook group on Facebook. I have a business page there and on Instagram. And it's just, I'm just out there spreading the word and spreading hope and so much more to come. But anybody who's questioning their relationship with alcohol, regardless of where it is, I welcome families as well. We need to educate these people as well. So let's just not, you know, sobriety and addiction, it's not a dirty word. It's a word that we need to use more in our vocabulary and just continue to have treatment and hope, right? And then let's get back to doing the work that we're supposed to do. Let's get them the treatment that they deserve and the support and keep on living that life that we don't want to escape from anymore. So thank you so much, Ashley, for having me and allowing me to share part of my story. And just, I hope that this resonates with people and that there's some hope that that is instilled in some people who are just feeling feeling alone and discouraged. Yeah, I'm sure that this will resonate with people. So thank you so much. Thank you for the work that you do. It's really important. And it's, it's really incredible what you've put together and uh, women need the support. So thank you for being there. And anybody who is interested in Michelle's work, go to recoveryisthenewblack.com. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. LionRock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering over 70 weekly online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. 
Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs or alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.